They're coming to get you, Barbara. Keep watching the sky. Well, a, a boy's best friend is his mother. Don't fall asleep. I want to play a game. The blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. Children of the night, what music they Good evening, boys and ghouls, and welcome back to Saturday Night Spookorama, the podcast examining the history of horror films from the golden age to the present day. We are coming to you live in crystal clear Spookasonic audio from our luxury studio in Hollywood, California, where we're hard at work pitching our heartwarming seasonal sequel set at the North Pole, Santa Claus Meets the Thing from Another World. <laughs> I'm your host, Thad Kelly, and with me as always are my co-hosts, Sabrina Gall. Hey, guys. Justice Hepburn. Hey. And Alex Kump. I am the ghost of Spooksmith's future and or present. And our stalwart producer, Mr. Andrew Barnes. Hey, everybody. Tonight's episode is the Spookorama Christmas Spooktacular. And unlike hack podcasts, who will be reviewing Silent Night, Deadly Night, or Black Christmas, we're taking a different tack. The theme of the evening will be Secret Santa. Each of us has secretly assigned another member of the Spookorama gang a movie to watch and respond to. This episode will be absolutely stuffed to the gills with five films worth of our signature Cracker Jack film analysis, while your hosts will be customarily <laughs> stuffed with both good cheer and holiday treats. So without further ado, your Spookorama Christmas Spooktacular. How are we doing, guys? Yay, Christmassy thing. Yay. Woo. Jingle bells, <laughs> jingle bells, da 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 It's Nogsmas. Uh, our greatest holiday. Hell yeah. Um, so how are we doing tonight, guys? Are we feeling uh, full of holiday cheer? I am you know uh, jovial in the most holiday sense of the word. Excellent. Jolly, even. Shut the fuck up. Is that a fat joke? Go fuck <laughs> yourself. <laughs> <laughs> well, fair. <laughs> uh, well, gang, I think we were just going to jump on in. But before we do that, I think there's a couple orders of business. So I was thinking that we'd just go around and each of us say what movie we were assigned and then maybe go around and take a guess at who assigned it. Oh, we should we should guess and figure out why. Like our, our like one sentence summary as to why we think they picked it. Sure. So uh, who wants to start? I'll start. I uh, was assigned the film Martyrs from uh, the 2008 French one, not the apparently shitty 2015 remake. I believe I was assigned it by Sabrina. Yeah. Because it has queer subtext. And because it's very violent, but very well made. You got it, man. Thanks. I guess we're admitting at this time as well. <laughs> that wasn't really my intention, but we're going for it. Me neither, <laughs> but here we are. <laughs> okay. I'll go next, because I don't have much of an idea. I, I'm sort of shooting in the dark here. Uh, my film was The Exorcist 3 from, uh, what year is this from? 1990. I quite liked it. I thought, I'm pretty sure... That whoever assigned it to me assigned it because of the famous uh, guy in a sheet with garden shears jump scare in it. And I uh, talked about uh, my great love of good jump scares in our Patreon exclusive episode. Go check that out. Patreon.com slash But I'm going to guess that Thad assigned me this movie because it 
kind of seems like it might be the thing he'd be in, type of thing he'd be into. I don't know. Well, my friend, you're right. Yeah! I love being right. <laughs> I uh, I wanted to uh, assign uh, you that picture because um, when we got the assignments, I was expecting uh, to get either Sabrina or Alex for some reason. And my big <laughs> idea was I was going to make one of you watch Frankenhooker. Um, oh, man. <laughs> But I decide. But then I got Justice, and I was like, "Well, it's not as much fun to make Justice watch Frankenhooker." Thank you. Next year. <laughs> oh, exactly. So, uh, yeah, um, I was thinking, uh, what's a movie that won't be a dead giveaway that it's me? So, i.e., something made after 1970, because uh, anything made before that's a dead giveaway, and uh, something a little weird, a little offbeat. So uh, that was the movie I decided on. It was a good pick. Uh, who's next? I'll go next. So I was assigned the 2015 movie The Nightmare, and I believe that was by Alex. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah, uh, my rationale was that he's the only one who would have remembered that I get sleep paralysis. Would that not have remembered that? Yeah, but I know that Thad didn't get me. Oh, okay. <laughs> only just because, like, there's no way Thad even knew of that movie. Yeah, I uh, remembered that Barnes has sleep paralysis, and I uh, possibly regrettably was like, oh, this will be a good thing to talk about on air. <laughs> no, I think it's a really good idea. Mm. Yeah, thank you. So mm. throw each other, everything's going to torture each other. Great. <laughs> um, and I also, we had talked about the director, because he also directed uh, Room 237. Mm. And uh, I had not seen this film, but it is a, um, he's very interesting to watch a documentary horror film from. Documentary is probably a strong word. Yeah, we'll get into that. Yeah. We'll get into that. Yeah, he's... He's a very complicated, very complicated filmmaker, mm. and it was a, a genre pick that uh, was also uh, offbeat, and that's why I picked it. Cool. Very well. So I watched um, The Loved Ones, the uh, 2008-2009 uh, Australian uh, horror movie, and I'm pretty sure it was uh, Justice who assigned it to me. Um, it was one of the newer movies, and I know Justice has a, quite the penchant for uh, interesting, colorful uh, modern movies. <laughs> So uh, you got me. Hey, well done. Well done. <laughs> and so that leaves me. And uh, I was assigned the 2009 film, uh, The House of the Devil, which by process of elimination must have been assigned to me by Mr. Andrew Barnes. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, so, what a nice oh, film what? to have given Thad. Like, that's a very mm -hmm. nice gift. <laughs> You, there's a lot. There's a lot of history between you guys, and like I'm telling you, if I had gotten that, I would have assigned you Jennifer's body. Um, <laughs> didn't we watch Jennifer's body? We tried once? to watch it when we uh your senior year in college, and uh, you and Barnes both walked out, but you walked out first, and like Barnes gave a much longer chance than you did. Um, <laughs> and uh, I don't, you know, it wasn't I think anything that film personal. Is, is I think that's a great film. I should probably give it another chance, honestly. Yeah, it's fun. It's not good, but it's fun. <laughs> Uh, I, you know, that was a hard time in my life. Give me a break. <laughs> I mean, fair. I think before we start our discussion, there is one more order of business. So, uh, I have in my hands a present for Mr. Barnes, uh, and this is from the rest of the Spookorama gang, and it is, uh, out of thankfulness for putting in all the hard work and time that you put into editing this podcast. So, uh, I'd like to have you open that on air and, uh, tell the folks out there in podcast land what you think. Uh, all right. Thanks, guys. <laughs> yeah. You're welcome. You're Drum great. Roll. For all the well. work you've done and all the work yet to come. Oh, <laughs> <Aww>, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
it is a bottle of a Chartreuse Vieillissement Exceptionnellement Prolongé, uh, which is uh, an aged brand of fancy French um, liqueur made by monks. And I've always wanted a bottle of it, and I've never had one, so thank you all so much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thanks for your hard work, You're friends. welcome. We thank love you. and Merry appreciate Christmas. you. <laughs> thank you. You're a good man, Andrew Barnes. You're all extremely good. We are Except certainly here, you. that's for sure. <laughs> uh, well, with that uh, little bit of business out of the way, shall we just jump right into our uh, our discussion? Yeah, jump. Let's away. go. Fantastic. Is would anyone like to volunteer to volunteer. Uh, summarize the film that they were assigned? I believe Alex just volunteered. Oh, hey. all right. <laughs> you stole his fun. Dang. I know. I just repeated it. <laughs> oh, he did. Oh, I missed it. It worked to greater effect, though, so you win. <laughs> <laughs> well. Go for it, Alex. All right. So the film that I was uh, lovingly assigned by Sabrina was the 2008 film Martyrs by, uh, you know, I'm not going to try to say his name. His last name. His name is Pascal something. I'm fucking American, so I don't got to learn no goddamn French. Um, <laughs> but it is a French-Canadian extreme horror film. It is considered to be part of the new french extremity movement is what the name has been given but it is a fairly recent movement in film history uh, especially in france that is all about fucked up horror films other movies in there include uh high tension which i've seen and is uh okay yeah that's the one that i was familiar with uh, most yeah most that's like the with. the big one and then uh, intimacy is a 2001 film that kind of kicked it off and isn't there a one called uh, Inside? I think that's also Oh, yeah, another... yeah, that's another one. Yeah. Yeah, those are some of the, the famous ones. Uh, but this is a fucking film, guys. <laughs> uh, I turned to Sabrina and I watched it together today, and I turned to her when I finished, and I said, I have to summarize this. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> uh, that's true. The movie runs for uh, about a, uh, the director's cut runs for about uh, an hour 45, give or take. And it feels like it's three and a half hours long in a good way. But uh, I guess kind of the quick outline of the movie is there is a uh, young uh, girl who is running away from something. You're like, not sure what. And then you found out she was like super crazy abused and like tied up and like it was fucking terrible. And then she meets in her new orphanage. She meets a new best friend and they grow up together. Fast forward to 15 years later, the... Uh, abused girl is breaking into this house and you're like I don't know why and she starts killing people and you're like what the fuck and you find out that's the abusers that abused her as a child and she kills them and then uh, she starts breaking down and her friend tries to help her and does not uh, by accident and I, I just keep talking about this forever but more crazy <laughs> shit happens <laughs> fucking if you haven't watched this movie yet literally every conversation from here on out is going to be major spoilers I would suggest uh, especially for a film like this, stop this podcast, watch the movie, and come back. It should be the new Christmas film for you. Like no more, no more Die Hard, just Martyrs, as recommended by yours truly. So, so yeah, this is this is our discussion about Martyrs. Uh, I don't know if there's a uh, in, inter movie uh, discussion grid to talk about, but I will start one. <laughs> Uh, I, I really like this film. Um, I appreciated how intentional it was 
you can tell from the beginning of the writing and all the way down to the cinematography and costume choice and sound editing that it is a very, very well thought out film. This film debuted at one of the film festivals. Cannes, maybe? That's the, yeah. French, that's the French one, right? Cannes. Yeah, but uh, it debuted there and it was super divisive. Uh, some people loved it. A lot of people wrote it off as torture porn. I don't believe it to be torture porn. I think it's a very uh, intelligent and earnestly made film, although there's a lot of torture in it. Um, yeah, I think it. Yeah, I would. <laughs> I would agree, unsurprisingly. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> find that it like tries to find the line between intentional and too much, and like it tries to like walk that line. Um, all while maintaining a, le- a high level of difficulty to understand, but like intentional difficulty to understand. Well, that's an interesting line for me is um, how you distinguish, and maybe torture porn is a loaded term, but like what is the dividing line when you're looking at uh, extremely graphic violence in film or, or footage of people being you know, tortured in film? What distinguishes, you know, a torture porn film from a a tasteful film that includes gruesome <laughs> torture? You know, um, uh, yeah. it's an interesting I've, question to me. I've got a I've got a, some points of view on that. I'm not going to articulate them well because I'm bad at talking. But otherwise, <laughs> cool. Just know that in my head, these are smart thoughts. <laughs> um, I I think that uh, when you look at violence in film in any way, I think you need to look at uh, how it's portrayed. Yeah. There's a lot of films that very much uh, glorify violence, uh, make it seem cool or fun. Like There's no like lasting effect for any of it. And th- those tend to be the more sort of like violence for violence sake films. What I think is really great about uh, Martyrs is that a lot of the, the violence doesn't seem fetishistic. It seems realistic. Yeah. Uh, you have a lot of just like super brutal violence that is realistic you know you, you don't have any sort of uh during the scenes where uh the main character whose name is anna yes the, uh when you have uh anna who uh in this third act of the film is uh captured and being tortured uh it's not there's just scenes of her just literally just being beaten and uh they're all these single uh camera shots you know you don't get any sort of close-ups on any sort of violence really uh it's all sort of like you're just watching this thing as if you're a participant in the room and i think it's uh used to an effect which is something that a lot of uh quote-unquote torture porn doesn't do it's just sort of there because they want you to be like "Ooh, look at all this guy getting his legs sawn off <laughs> uh but i i think there's a very uh particular uh effect that the director wants the film to have on you with this violence. And I think for me, that's that sort of line between like, you know, torture porn for torture porn's sake and actual like commentary and art and using violence as a tool. Yeah. I'd also piggyback on that um, and say, well, the ends uh, or the end uh, is for the violence is usually means to an end. Um, the means are very simple while the end is very complex and in this film, by not glorifying the means, the end becomes not more gratifying, but um, relatable in 
a really bizarre way. Well, there's something, um, you know, just in terms of this distinction, which I think is very, very interesting. This was something I was thinking about because we were talking um, about like uh, horror remakes. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, so I was thinking specifically about sort of the the canonical great 80s horror remakes, The Thing and The Fly, (laughs) all remakes of 50s films. Then there's Toby Hooper's Invaders from Mars. Invaders from Mars is a lot like those other movies. It's a sort of big budget, special effects heavy, uh, nostalgic remake of a cult 50s, you know, scary movie. It does similar things in that it takes a different tack than the original film did. But like Toby Hooper's Invaders from Mars sucks. It's just not good. <laughs> and so like sometimes the uncomfortable answer to why is this thing good and this thing bad is like, uh, well, they did it better. <laughs> like, the, you know, it, it, it's like a non-answer, but it's also the truth. Yeah. You know, you, you have uh, like what distinguishes a, you know, this question that we have here. Uh, it's like, well, one of these movies did it well and Eli Roth is a hack. <laughs> like, you know, that's yeah. that, he's super hot, uh, ultimately though. Sometimes that's what it comes down to. I don't know. I would like to say, because I know this is going to get in, Eli Roth, uh, while maybe not the best filmmaker, super hot. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking Eli Roth, I just followed you on t- from the Spookerama Twitter recently. <laughs> Follow us back. If you uh, ever end up listening to this, I want you to know that uh, I'm sure you have a very nice wife, uh, but if you ever want the SUCC, I got you. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, uh, going back to, to Martyrs. Um, actually, no, to go back to the, the conversation we've been having before I started uh, dreaming about uh, fucking Eli Roth. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's going to stay in, and I regret that. Um, <laughs> the uh, I think also when it comes to torture porn, there's a lot of that sort of like what is porn porn point of view on it, which is sort of like I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, I agree with a lot of what you guys are saying, and I agree that this movie does it. In its last third or so, it sets the tone very, very well, where it's just this horrible brutality and it's really hard to sit through. But I feel like the movie kind of breaks its own tone after she gets skinned alive. I feel like after that point, that's kind of a bridge too far for me. Like everything else was very much like, yeah, it was really, it was very real pain. It was very tangible and horrible. But after after that, after she's skinned alive and she's just sitting around for whatever it was, like a day, not dying, that sort of it sort of broke my immersion into the film. Spoilers, by the way. <laughs> I agree with that. I the I'm still up in the end a little bit. It sort of seems like uh, the most fucked up episode of Black Mirror ever. <laughs> but yeah, the the end is a little. I I, I get it. I don't know. I don't know. I'm still trying to process it. Uh, and I guess I don't have anything better to say than, uh, I don't know, but the end is weird. <laughs> yeah, I can't think of an ending that would satisfy the characters involved. And uh, yeah, I can see where the skinning alive is is perhaps over the, just a little too far. God, I, yeah, and I, I don't have a, <laughs> have a whole lot to say to that, I guess. <laughs> um, I think it changes the pace but also keeps really um, keeps in line with how how the movie has presented itself, which for me is it sets a scene and then uh, and sets a location and then changes it entirely. Yeah, where you have this understanding for how Anna has been treated so far, and then she's 
then it changes um, in a way that you don't know how to expect. Of course, I'm not advocating that we should be skinning people alive. That's not a good idea. <laughs> um, but I think I'm a little more fond of the ending, mostly because it's it, I, and it, it ends with a ends with a suicide of a of the what appears to be the uh, director of this program, for a lack of a better word. Um, and having found out what her group was set to do, um, she kills herself. And that's, it's a tough note to end on uh, in that it, it, it is very sudden where nothing else is in that same sense. Um, oh no, the entire film is, has lots of sudden violence. Like that's literally how the film opens <laughs> and <true>. continues. <laughs> <laughs> like not to like shit on this idea you're creating as you speak. Uh, yeah, but, I am like, creating it right now. My bad. <laughs> um, no, yeah, uh, I, I don't mind that she killed herself. I thought that was interesting. Um, I don't really like the sort of like Inception-y ending of the like. Oh, like what? What was it? Like, let me think about this after the movie. Like, did you hear good things or bad things? Well, I don't know. Please tell me more. Yeah, but but I'd rather <laughs> I'd rather that than some sort of half-assed like. Yeah, here's what she found out. Yeah, I guess. I feel like the film could have ended earlier. It would have been fine. Um, I don't know. I don't know if it would have been, should have been different. But I don't think we needed the last five ten minutes. Perhaps a theme running through several uh, movies this week is um, endings that sort of crap out yeah um, so yeah. i guess we'll talk more about that as as we go but that may be a a theme, <laughs> a theme yeah. uh, this christmas uh <laughs> yeah. <crapping out. laughs> yeah not not seeing things through to the end crapsmas <laughs> i i think that i guess the only reason it's moderately disappointing this film is because the rest of the movie is so intricately plotted and paced and so well written that it feels a little gimmicky for a film that otherwise had not been very gimmicky yeah, I I might take it a step further and say I thought like the first hour or so was a very very excellent film and the last half an hour or so I could kind of take or leave everything after she gets captured and we get the whole the whole speech about like this is what we're trying to do here with all this torture and stuff. Yeah. I f- I kind of feel like if it had just ended with her being captured and it's like, well shit. Um I I feel like that would have been stronger i'm not sure i agree but i understand what you're saying (laughs) so i like getting the sort of closure that allows me to piece together like what else is going on in the movie i I, that's the what really drives me to get um to even get to that point in the movie is i don't know what's happening but i sure as hell hope i understand eventually (laughs) (laughs) because you're you're led by this this uh, basically blind a blind plot wise um protagonist um and I, I don't know it's exciting to continue to learn i did just want to comment that i read uh that the director of this film said um something along the lines of the hardest part of making this <laughs> film was uh keeping the actresses from crying all day and um <laughs> yeah i don't know <laughs> Maybe that's your problem, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean... There are a lot of ladies, which is cool. Yeah, what I also really appreciate about this, because Sabrina knows me uh, well, is pretty much completely female cast. Uh, non- mostly uh, non-completely white 
performers as far as I'm aware. Yeah, those are big things for me. And it's really great to see a film that can showcase how fucking amazing all of these performers are because like holy shit <laughs> yeah there was a lot of range <laughs> yeah and all the makeup was amazing too mm-hmm. uh like the oh, creepy yeah. the creepy uh fiction demon the girl that was left behind memory demon thing that was around mm-hmm. like that makeup is amazing yeah the the girl that they they find uh, that's found in the basement to begin with Ugh. basically just frozen in place that whole that whole scene even i knew it was coming but it was still disgusting. <laughs> that is something I will say, uh, you know, uh, that's something, or it's something to be said about especially contemporary horror, uh, is that, and again, this might just be my my perception, but it seems like the only genre where female protagonists are more common than male protagonists. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A lot of horror films, uh, especially recent ones, uh, about women. So, anyhow, interesting. Yeah. Mm. Thanks, Slasher. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, I don't know, as a person who likes to read films under a feminist lens, uh, this film stands up really well. You know, you have, not only is it about a woman, but it's um, about, uh, there's like, you know, there's women in power, uh, you know, it's about female uh, friendships and love between women. Uh, The only men in the film are just props essentially to get the rest of the story moving and uh, that's great <laughs> less less men movies <laughs> i don't know anything else we want to say about uh martyrs justice did you watch martyrs i did i thought it was i liked it i thought it was a better short film that's like 50 minutes in length or so than a full feature because the ending while effective i thought kind of brought down a lot of the interesting stuff in the first two-thirds or so i can believe that yeah alex i'm glad you you liked it yeah thank you you, you picked good sabby thanks bruh <laughs> yeah it was it was it was tough to find a good one for you so it was tough it was tough to find you so find... it took you like fucking a week to do it yeah exactly it took me a while because i was like oh man alex what do you what do you even like if i if i can ask what other films were under consideration nothing really because i, I was like oh man so there's this movie there was a, it was mostly movies i hadn't seen i was talking with max about it and uh they had a few that like sounded like good options, but again, I hadn't seen them, so I couldn't, in good faith, <laughs> recommend them. So. Oh. <laughs> I hadn't seen the House of the Devil when I recommended it to that, so you could have done whatever you want. I also had not seen my movie when I recommended it, so. I want to. I just. I. I. As like on on principle, like to know what I'm giving, <laughs> but. Because <laughs> otherwise, it might have been. A nightmare. Oh. <laughs> hey, I guess that's on to me then. So I watched the uh, 2015 uh, film The Nightmare, directed by Rodney Asher, and it is uh, a documentary sort of slash horror movie sort of interviewing eight people about their experiences with sleep paralysis. With the dra- dramatizations of their experiences, they recount their visions and finish off with their dumb theories about astral projection and parallel dimensions. <laughs> oh, I missed that part. That's great. <laughs> just before we really get into this movie, um, Barnes, can you tell the audience, just in case they don't know, what sleep paralysis is? So sleep paralysis is uh, it, it's a thing that happens to some people where upon waking from sleep or going to sleep, they experience a state of being completely paralyzed but awake uh, with their senses about them, unable to move, where they vividly hallucinate. 
Uh, and included in most all of these is a feeling of abject terror. Basically, uh, your body stays asleep while your brain wakes up, so you can't move and you're still dreaming, but you can see, you can experience it as if you're awake. So it's terrifying. Yeah. It's... Can you talk about your experiences a little bit? Okay. So uh, I started experiencing sleep paralysis when I was in freshman year of college. <sighs> I was lying in bed after a, a kind of wild night. Um, I woke up in the morning uh, not thinking anything was uh, unusual, but I couldn't move. And then a face pushed itself out of my wall, like uh, like made up like the, the drywall was just formed into a face and looked at me. So like that scene from Nightmare on Elm Street. Yes. Yeah, exactly. God, that's terrible. Yeah. yeah. So, OK, they, they interviewed a lot of people for this movie and all of them recount like their experiences starting when they were a kid or, like, hearing about it from someone else, and then that, like, triggered it or led them to, you know, start experiencing it. But all of them had, like, uh, they didn't really know what was going on or understand what it felt like. I think I was in an interesting class of people because I had read about it extensively before it ever happened to me without thinking it ever would. So when it happened, I didn't, like, freak out. I just basically recognized what it was in the back of my head. Uh, that didn't make it, uh, that didn't make it, like, any better, but... <laughs> so, like, you know, the, the, the more terrifying things in this movie, like, one of them, you know, started experiencing it as a very young kid, and he recounts, like, aliens standing over his bed, basically. Figures like aliens, but with somehow even creepier faces, like, standing <laughs> over his bed and being terrified of going to sleep. Um... You know, as a child, like I never I never had that because I've always been like, oh, OK, this is what this is. And, you know, I, I don't think mine's very like extreme. So I've usually I've gotten really good at just snapping myself out of it. Uh, what they talk about, like trying to move, like trying to throw your body around to snap yourself out of it. Totally true. Yeah. Uh, what did we those who watched the nightmare? What did we think of the nightmare? Uh, a film worth discussing, if nothing else. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Mm. I viewed it basically primarily as a documentary, even though a lot of it is framed as a horror film. And in that sense, I found it very interesting and people's experience is very interesting. Though I will say that the dramatizations, I think, sometimes failed to capture like the scope of the, what people were describing. And that's because what people were describing wasn't always like something you could illustrate visually. Yeah. You know, a sense of a presence being there or overwhelming fear, stuff like that is hard to capture. And I think some of the dramatizations sort of fell short. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I, as an explanation of the phenomenon, I think it was pretty interesting. Hmm. I agree. Yeah, I think it falls under this weird sort of like documentary almost uh, header that's not really true. Um, I think it's, it's more of a, it's sort of like a hybrid of a horror film and a documentary. Yeah. Mm. Uh, to say it's just one or the other is not true. Okay. But yeah, I wanted to be like, oh, this is a documentary. And I, I knew going in that they didn't like talk to anybody who mattered. <laughs> yeah. They don't like talk to doctors or anything. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but the, I, the director certainly has this fondness as we know from, uh, room 237 for letting people talk about their crazy beliefs as if that's a totally normal thing. <laughs> uh, and that's what, like, I guess, shines here, if maybe not brilliantly, but uh, it's uh, certainly the interesting part of it. I agree with you. Um, my two immediate comments would be, and I said this to you, Barnes, uh, have any of these people tried sleeping on their stomach? I hear yeah. that helps. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, it's like 90% of cases happen when you're sleeping on your back. Number two... Uh, good for that guy that he took DMT in the woods and that fixed it. <laughs> <laughs> oh like, honestly, good on him. Yeah. No, I think, um, unlike, 
like dumb people talking about their Minotaur conspiracy theories in The Shining, I can allow it more in this context yeah. because it is like something you would think you were like fucking astral projecting or viewing like a an alien realm or that like people from another dimension were here to like kill you uh, if you didn't know what was going on. Uh, people think that sleep paralysis is the root cause of pretty much every alien abduction fantasy. Yeah. Or, uh, like, like, thing. And, yeah, I can see it. If, you know, aliens appeared around your bed and you couldn't move, what else the fuck are you gonna think? That you're going crazy? <laughs> and, well, yes. <laughs> but it's not actually, you're not actually going crazy. Yeah, and, and, like, to go back to what you said, Alex, the film is very, um, I guess you could argue that he just lets the camera roll, and like you say, it's just people, you know, talking, and you're not really meant to necessarily believe, you know, that what they're saying is true, but something about the film, like, seems very, it presents it as if it's, it's true. Yeah. You know, it, it's... In a weird way, it reminded me of, like, Flat Earth documentaries. Mm. Like, it was just like, yep, this is the truth. We're not going to talk to anybody else, and this is the truth. You know, and, like, I don't know if that was the point, but it kind of came off that way. I think that's an interesting thing that this director, uh, what's his name, Rodney Asher, uh, I think that's an interesting thing he does where he's, where most documentaries are going for some kind of objective truth. He's presenting people's subjective truth in that same documentary light. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really cool and interesting. And I think it works better in this film than it did in Room 237, mm -hmm. which is still a movie I like. I'm sorry. But at the same time, I'm very worried about that one dude who like said, he's like, yeah, this happens to me every night. I'm pretty sure I'm astral projecting. Like, oh, is that, yeah. is that the same guy who started putting televisions in his rooms and um, yeah. Yeah. he had like 30 TVs? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm yeah. so worried about that dude. Uh, one thing I'm super interested in this film is how uh, it is how it is filmed, like where the, what the camera does and when it goes there. You know, you have a lot of films that have like talking heads that uh, are just, you know, someone like looking at the camera or looking slightly off camera and talking. Interestingly, this film doesn't do that. You know, it, it'll have that sort of static shot of this person talking and, you know, the director is interviewing them. But it'll give, it has a lot of like wandering cameramen who like will stand outside of the room and like film the interviewee from like outside of the room and will move weirdly sometimes. Yeah. Uh, and I think mm -hmm. it's to really great effect. But I think it, what's also interesting about it is that it brings forth the documentary as part of the subject matter, too. Because, yeah. you know, like there are, you know, you're not used to like seeing anybody interviewing anybody usually. Unless it's like, you know, a, like, you know, Barbara Walters interviewing someone for some fucking TV special. But, <laughs> uh, you know, like there's like crewmen in the back of shots a lot. There's parts where like you know you're just talking to this guy and then like the cameraman will slowly step back and uh sort of pan out and you know he'll see who he's talking to and yeah there's one time when you see the cameraman in a mirror yeah you know and that's just mm -hmm. like that's actually more prominent in the shot than the guy who's being interviewed yeah. which is interesting um i think part of it was they were trying to go for um that say that sort of foreboding feeling of watching that they talk about a lot as people experiencing in their nightmares, you know, trying to almost like put you in that position of, you know, weird alien things that are made of static. 
staring <laughs> at you from your doorway. It also like does sort of bring in... I, I think he's very keenly aware of his status as a maybe documentary filmmaker. or uh, And I think he kind of tries to call that into question while he's making the film. I think that's super fascinating. Yeah, just in terms of how the film is framed, there's an interesting part where we watch, um, you know, one of the... It's a dramatization scene where someone is feeling that they're being menaced by the shadow person and the, the actor playing the shadow person walks off that set and the camera tracks him through like a, you know, the set of people's bedrooms mm-hmm. and he goes into another dramatization, um, which I think it's meant to go along with some of the claims later in the film that, you know, these experiences are missives from some other reality or dimension or whatever. And, you know, that it's, it's part of one system that, that sort of intersects with each other. And that's a really interesting idea, but my, my thought was, like, I kind of would rather see a fictional take on this. Like, the explicit connection that these pseudo-documentary makes with sleep paralysis makes me just go, like, ah, uh, yeah, no, but you're wrong. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> me too. Like, I would be really interested in, like, a fictional take on the same subject. Like, that's something I could really get on board with, and I, I would be interested with but just the way this is framed even though i suspect i don't know like like the director talks about briefly you see him you hear him talking about his experiences with sleep paralysis so it's like to what extent do you subscribe to this you know yeah i mean isn't that fictional take on it nightmare on elm street aren't there six of those i mean uh <laughs> yes, I mean that's one aspect of it. I, I was thinking more specifically of like the other dimension overlaid on top of us mm. that okay. sometimes touches through in certain people's experiences, you know. Yeah, fair. Okay. I don't know, just to maybe give a little background on the whole um like thing where it's like, oh, there are these things from another dimension and like shadow people. Uh there's a reason why a lot of people see like shadow people and like humanoid-ish aliens, but wrong. It's just you're in a you're in a state of like heightened terror. Your brain is looking for a threat, and it's pro- it's gonna see one in the form of what you think is going to hurt you, a person. So you know it's it's not unusual that these are actually like connected in that way. I've never gotten to see an alien or a shadow person though, so <laughs> I'm feeling a little left out. The only people in my dreams have had the faces of my friends. Oh, yeah, Ooh. who vivisected you? Oh wow, yeah, that happened once. That's a lot. I did it. I did it to you. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> Uh, was was I there? I'd be no, no. My my one of my most vivid recollections is um, Thad. Uh, I was lying in my bed. Thad's ex girlfriend was pinning me down, and well, Thad cut me open. Wow. Jesus. <laughs> yeah, we're still friends after that. And uh, <laughs> and that is actually uh, you didn't know it, but your brain was creating a metaphor for uh, this podcast. Uh. <laughs> um, to go go back to a little bit what that I was talking about. I would have liked this film a lot more if it had gone in either of the directions it was pulling itself. Um, you know, it like for a little bit kind of wanted to go about the like legitimate what is sleep paralysis route, but it, you know, doesn't really ever pull that way. Uh, then it also kind of wanted to do like a fictional sleep paralysis thing and never really fully goes that way. And I sort of wish it kind of just like, this is the way I feel about all of Asher's films is that they're like, you know, you got some good ideas, but like just never like fucking picked one and went with it. 
Instead, just try to put everything into the same goddamn movie. It really feels like something I would pass over on the History Channel. (laughs) Yeah. And and not like the old History Channel, which is all Hitler documentaries, but like the new one that has nothing to do with history. Yeah. And it's it's all aliens. Really. uh, It just really rubbed me the wrong way the whole way through. I, I don't. And that might just be me not liking people very much. Uh, and all of these, every person that was asked to be interviewed just wasn't very good at articulating what was going on with their bodies. Um, and that was incredibly frustrating to me. And I totally understand that they're trying to, um, take something that's very confusing and something that they themselves were very confused about, but obviously they're they know a bit about it now, so I wish they could talk about their previous experiences in a in an informed way. And I think that there's, you know, just in terms of what tone are you trying to take and, and how much do you buy this? Like, you look at a movie, a documentary like uh, Werner Herzog's Grizzly Man or uh, Errol Morris's um, Gates of Heaven. Yeah. Where, like, it's just like the camera's running on these people and... Maybe Gates of Heaven's a better idea. Grizzly Man's a little more um, cold-hearted, I think. Uh, but, like, Gates of Heaven is, you know, uh, he just lets the camera run on these people and they just talk. Like, you can sort of feel that the filmmaker has some affection for them, but it's not like, yeah, these people are not weird. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, next, no, these people are fucking weird. Yeah, they are. And... And being mm. exposed to that, that's really what the movie's about, even if, if you sort of get the feeling that Earl Morris sort of likes at least some of them. But like this documentary, uh, it's again, it lets this just lets the camera run. These people talk. They're fucking weird. But like you come away feeling like like you're, you're meant to be convinced that what they're saying is true. Yeah. I don't know. No, I feel you. It definitely unlike uh, Gates of Heaven, which doesn't really have a point of view. This one definitely seems to have a message and a point of view that it wants you to believe. Yeah. I don't know if I agree with that. I feel like it, rather than trying to convince you of these people's point of view, I feel like it's more trying to put you in the mindset of their conviction, of their of their full-hearted belief that they are going through something supernatural. Um, and I think it does that fairly well. No, I, I see I see where that comes from. I there's a certain part of me that agrees with you. I'm, I'm not sure I buy it fully, but I think that there's some truth to that. Do we have anything else to say about the nightmare? Uh, when the spectral cat appeared, I wanted to pat it. <laughs> <laughs> it was so uh, nice. I will I will shout out to the movie for this. Slightly cheap, but good jump scare towards the end there. I, I appreciated that. The, the, yeah, the like, screaming face thing. I thought that was pretty good. Pretty yeah, good had, jump scare. They had a couple pretty solid jump scares. Yeah. yeah. I liked the design of the giant uh, yeah. demon with red eyes. The giant, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, that was really yeah. effective. The the uh, st- static people were fucking laughable, though. Yeah. That's such a hard thing to express, yeah. I think. Yeah. I liked the guy who made the mask of his night terrors, though. That was yeah. pretty cool. Yeah. Now I want to hang out with that guy. It does look <laughs> yeah. like something that would terrify a child, though. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Absolutely. yeah. Absolutely. Justice, that man wants to go out in the woods and do DMT with you. So Fuck yeah. If that's what you're into. <laughs> uh, Let's do it. Also, like, something interesting about this film is that... Um, interesting is the wrong word. I'm going to criticize it. It does a good job of... <laughs> of, of building like uh, a sense of scale and tension like it starts you off kind of slow and then it gets into the really nasty 
stuff later on. But an exception to that is, you know, the, the really crazy guy with the TVs who's like, yeah, uh, someday soon I'm going to die uh, during one of these episodes. The actual, like, pinnacle of what he's describing feels like a step backwards from everything else we're seeing. Mm. Like, you know... The claw machine on the guy's dick. Yeah, the, well, he does, that's stuff he describes. The giant, his uh, dick being shredded by a claw machine, that's all stuff he describes, and it's like, oh, fuck, that's really scary. But then, like, from there, he goes into, like, uh, yeah, there's a big fat guy with red hair, and a guy roller skated by, and then I felt weightless, <laughs> and someday I'm going to die. And it's like, wait, what? <laughs> Go back to the giant, and your, your dick getting shredded by a claw machine. You know, that's a lot scarier. <laughs> Yeah. Then, like, a big fat guy with red hair who knew you. That's just like a dream. That's like <laughs> someone telling you their boring dream. Yeah. yeah. That is something that bothered me about this, that a lot of them are just very clearly have nothing to do with sleep paralysis. Mm-hmm. They're just people's nightmares. <laughs> yes. Uh, that one, the yeah. one about getting a call from a demon. Oh, yeah. Oh, that one was pretty cool, though. <laughs> yeah, but, like, that's just a nightmare. He just woke up after that. That's true. <laughs> It was a very vivid nightmare. <laughs> I was mostly ups- upset that I, I knew a bit of, a little bit about sleep paralysis going in and I didn't learn anything. Therefore, I wasted my time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I, what I was interested in, which I actually almost wish the entire film was about it, was there's a little mini section about 15, 20 minutes into the film where they talk about sleep paralysis in relation to horror films. Yeah. And mm. that was fucking oh, yeah. fascinating. Like That was very cool. You know, as someone who... Uh, does not or i guess has yet to have sleep paralysis it uh is something you know i never would have considered because it's not you know for me or about me but you know hearing it i was like oh shit that makes so much sense well barnes you uh talking about it being contagious um oh yeah there is there's part of this movie that wants to set it as like a mind virus that's gonna spread uh sleep paralysis to people which is partially true mostly it's just remembering though (laughs) because a lot of people don't remember their dreams or like anything to do with any transition to or from sleep so like a lot of this oh i started experiencing this after i heard about it is literally just you being able to recognize in your brain what's going on in a way that allows you to make a memory out of it. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I will, I will take that uh, segue though. And I will say, um, I, uh, had difficult night sleeping, uh, the night after I watched that film, pos- partially cause I'm a pussy, partially because I was super stoned. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, I slept fine, but my girlfriend who has had sleep paralysis before was very mad that we watched this movie and she was <laughs> like, I'm not going to fucking sleep tonight. Asshole. Oh, I slept. <laughs> I slept during it. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> I drank heavily while we watched it and slept just fine. Yeah, I uh, I also drank heavily while we watched it, which usually is a contributor. Hmm. I no, honestly, I did everything after I watched this movie to like maximize the chances of me having an episode <laughs> of sleep paralysis, <laughs> and I got nothing. Damn. Oh. No, I mean it's like a really interesting subject. Yeah. Yeah. I can tell you about it. Uh, on the Patreon. That'd be cool. Oh, oh. You hear that, yeah. folks? Yeah. yeah. Uh, Patreon.com slash Spookorama. Uh, sign up to hear Barnes's. Um... I'll answer your questions about sleep paralysis. Yeah, that's good. In a horror movie context, I guess. You know, I was really surprised that there were was no witchcraft mentioned in our uh, in the nightmare. Yeah, we had a lot of demons, but we didn't have a lot of witchcraft. Unlike in our next film. <laughs> <laughs> You tell him that.
The House of the Devil, from 2009 and directed by Ty West, concerns a college sophomore named Samantha who desperately wants to get away from her obnoxious dorm roommate. <laughs> she rents an apartment without knowing how she'll pay for it, only to serendipitously see an ad for a babysitter position. When she arrives at the remote house belonging to her new employers, a mysterious old couple, she's put off by the revelation that she'll be caring for the man's elderly mother rather than a child, but motivated by a large sum of money, she elects to stay. However, as Samantha waits out the night, she discovers more and more evidence that something is terribly amiss. Now, at the mercy of a satanic cult, she has to fight to survive. So what do we think of uh, The House of the Devil, for those who watched it? Who watched this movie? I did. I did. I uh, did not watch it this week, but I have seen it in the past. Hey, Sad, what do you think about it? It was your movie. That's true. I, I, I was I was seating the floor, but I will talk about my feelings. Uh, I liked a lot of this movie. I didn't like the ending at all. Yeah. But I liked a lot of this movie. My immediate reaction, obviously, after seeing the ending, was like I was, I was not happy. I think I said to Barnes, "Oh, I didn't know this was going to be the Rosemary's Baby, but dumb." Um, <laughs> yeah, though. But uh, I think that the first seventy minutes are really good. The last fifteen—I don't actually know how long this is, but I'm—I just guessed it was eighty-five minutes. Uh, oh, it's ninety-five minutes. <laughs> uh, can you give can you give me a plot point where you start stopped enjoying it? Spoilers, guys. Uh, midnight when she passes out. Yeah, midnight when she passes out and she wakes up in the pentagram. Yep. Like really, the the movie is this really great old fashioned slow burn, and then just I'm sorry, but I think the last fifteen minutes is absurd schlock, I... which is fine. I thought it was so fun, guys. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm coming down with Sabrina. I think. The last 15 minutes is a really great release after all the slow burn. After... And I loved the final scene. No, I'm, I'm going to be with that on this one. Uh, I remember distinctly while watching it that like the, I don't know, when you have such like a masterful slow burn and then to waste it on like campy, bad, uninteresting, like schlock. It's disappointing. And I think that's like my biggest problem. If the rest of the film sort of had that tone to it, or at least hinted at it a little bit, I would have been like, yeah. But you know, like it was the rest of the film was like fucking really well made. Yeah. Mm. Well, and like you know, we've talked in the past about Rosemary's Baby. Um, it's a movie we just keep coming back to on this podcast. And uh, <laughs> I think I've expressed before that the last like two minutes of that movie, I think, is kind of absurd. Yeah. Uh, but like, hail I, I, Satan! Hail, hail Satan! No, Satan. I, I just. I love but that I shit. But I think that that's like better. It's like a better ending. I'm sorry, it is. <laughs> uh, and I don't know. I, like, I, I don't want to sound like I, I hate this movie because I don't. I thought it was pretty cool. I sort of wish I'd seen it when it came out because I think it's important in its time. And I know that 2009 doesn't seem like that long ago, but it, that is an increasingly long time ago. Ah, yeah, I just didn't like the ending at all. Oh, man. I thought the ending was just... I mean, beyond enjoyable, I thought it was a. I, I I disagree entirely with you and Alex. I thought it was pretty well done. I thought it, it like kept this same sort of visual tone. And for me, as someone who I, I get really tense, it was it was nice. Pow 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 pow. Everything's done, um, except not really. <laughs> um. <laughs> yeah, I would. There's a twist. I would say that. Um... This movie feels almost exactly the same way that Exorcist Three feels. That the ending sucks. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I guess, I, I guess that's it. But like, you no. know, like you're building. They, they specifically both build up to a very cool climax, and then just kind of blow their wad, and you're like, all right. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry this happened. 
I really liked how the God, he was the son, right? Um the the the, the guy who killed yeah. killed the, the killed the killed the friend was the pizza guy and then was the son. That was I, I loved that that thread and how it continued um continued onward and I was I was expecting him to be uh more terrifying earlier and then and then he was terrifying. I think uh, I actually want to talk about him a little bit because um there's some clever stuff there. Yeah, yeah, there is. And I really liked the parents. I thought that they were uh, a, a really compelling even though you don't see them in the movie that much, you see them and you're like, oh, Oh, something's wrong here. Yeah, but like, so good. But uh, but you know the 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 father is like so soft spoken. It's like, well, maybe it's all right. Even though, like, obviously, you know it's not all right. Um, <laughs> but I did want to talk about the the character, the son. For our listeners, do you want to give it a little context? Sure. Yeah. In my summary, I didn't give it, give it a lot of context. So, uh, our main character goes to this house, and uh, she meets her employers who. Uh, you know, th- these people who hired her to babysit, who are these two sort of older, they're a couple. They said they have an adult son, and the main character is going to look after their their mother, actually, uh, or one of their mothers. You don't know who this adult son is until later in the movie when you realize that uh, this mysterious man who's been hanging out outside the house and who murdered our main character's friend is actually their son. And all of those people are in a satanic cult, Led by the quote-unquote grandmother, who is a witch. Yeah, but uh, the the actor is A.J. Bowen um, for the son uh, character, and he was also in. He's been in a bunch of movies by Ty West and Adam Wingard. They're all like friends, I think. Um, uh, so, for instance, he was in the movie You're Next, directed by Adam Wingard. Right. Um, sorry, no, that and that's a movie he would like because it's. Uh... Mumble, uh, Mumble Gore is the sub subgenre. <laughs> Mumble Gore. <laughs> yeah. Wait, can we guys start? Can we start making Mumble Gore movies, guys? No. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I love Mumble Gore because I think that is like the best combination of my two aesthetics. <laughs> no, Mumble Core sucks, but Mumble Gore is awesome. Not all. justice. I don't want to hear it. Fair. You're so wrong. Justice, I think we're on the same page. It's fine. Alex and I long ago made a pact that we were going to make a Mumblecore movie that starred McCoy. Uh, <laughs> it's going to be so no! good. I'm uh, so excited for tell it. Tell me that wouldn't be the greatest thing on earth. No, I will destroy your cameras before I let that happen. It's going to be so good. <laughs> you know, just, just wait. <laughs> Anyhow, to get back uh, to um, this sort of... In your next, uh, AJ Bowen plays uh, sort of like this... Not pompous, but he's like the son of a, a rich guy, basically. And, you know, so he plays this like uncomfortable sort of nouveau riche kind of character. And uh, anyway, I don't want to explain the twists and turns of that movie. But I think that he's better in that role than in House of the Devil, where some something about him, I didn't buy his character having that brutality. I don't know what it is. Because um, he has a dumb hipster beard. Yeah, because he has a dumb hipster beard. I don't know. He seems like somebody who was cast in the movie because he was friends with the director. Like, you know, old buddies and they want to make this movie together. Which, like, works in a movie like Blue Ruin where the main character is, you know, is an old friend and collaborator of the director. But I just didn't really buy it in this one. On the other hand, uh, Jocelyn Donahue, who played uh, the main character in the Samantha, I thought was awesome. I thought she was just fucking great. Yeah, right? Uh, yeah, I don't know. And, and, like, you could say that sort of the tonal switch 
that we've been identifying is an aspect of the movie, like as an homage to 80s horror films. Like, I don't know, you could you could try and make that argument. I'm not sure I buy it, though. Uh, something we should probably mention is that this movie is, it was made in 2009, but it's supposed to be an 80s horror movie down to being shot on 16 millimeter film. Yeah, no, it's very, it has a lot of verisimilitude in terms of like, it looks like a movie from the late 70s, early 80s. Yeah, I would have been sold on it up to the point where the friend was shot in the car. Mm. Yeah. Um, and th- that was a move that was influenced by our 80, 80s horror movies, but um, the way it was done was much more modern. I really liked it, though. <laughs> so. <laughs> oh, yeah, that scene is great. I actually think that scene takes away from, like, the slow burn nature. Ah, yeah, but also they got to give you something. I guess. Oh, it, but it makes know? me so nervous to be back in that house. But, like, then they go back to the slow burn where she's, like, finding, like, photographs and hearing noises. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. I think it's all right. Like I said, I think that most of this movie works really well. Um, I like the mystery aspect. I kind of wish that there had been more focus on that. Mm-hmm. You know, I kind of feel that, like, the film gives away a little more than it needs to sometimes, you know. And again, it's, you know, they're using dramatic tension. But uh, I don't know. I, I, I like the mystery aspect and, like, finding out what was going on, even though the opening title makes it abundantly clear <laughs> that what you're about to witness involves satanic cults. Yeah. You mean um, the same thing that The Exorcist 3 does? Uh, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I think I, don't, I think the pizza thing, specifically in House of the Devil, is played very subtly and well. Where, like, at first it's, like, the dad Satanist being all, like, oh, I'm so forgetful. Did I say there was a pizza? And then as you go on, you realize, oh, the pizza is, like, drugged. And that's, like, the key to their plan. I think it's I think it's funny that it's almost foreshadowed, um, or much earlier in the movie, our um, protagonist and her pal are getting pizza and like, oh, this is disgusting. Yeah, <laughs> I also really like that, yeah. Yeah, and that's another thing that I like throughout the movie is um, even before the lunar eclipse enters the plot, there's all these things reminding you there's a lunar eclipse coming up. Mm-hmm. There's a, like you see on the bulletin board at school, eclipse viewing. Then at the pizza shop, you see a sign that says, you know, eclipse special. Uh, and it's like not like that makes it sound really overbearing, but it's not. It's very subtle. Uh, and it's like a well-plotted movie, yeah. definitely. And I, I, I do agree with a much earlier point of yours that I would have liked to see some sort of a cult um, foreshadowing in the same way. That would have that would have been very helpful. The movie opens with a a brief statement on how the occult exists and how there's witchcraft and blah 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 blah. blah. But like that, it's never me- it's not mentioned again until the end of the film. Well, I think that's an interesting aspect is that the movie plays on the satanic panic of the eighties. Can you talk about that a little bit for people who don't know? Oh, sure, sure, sure. Um, yeah, like in the eighties, there was this widespread belief that like there were rings of Satan worshiping, like uh, murderers, Satan worshiping, you know, pedophiles that like existed in uh, right under the surface of society. And this was a widespread belief. Like, it sounds absurd now, but a lot of innocent people were literally sent to jail. A lot of innocent people, or some innocent people are still currently in jail. Yes, because of this. Most famously would be the West Memphis Three, who were three teenagers from West Memphis, Arkansas, who were 
wrongly convicted of a ritual murder because one of them like owned a Metallica tape that mm. their mother had bought at Walmart. <laughs> you know, this is like really, it's a shameful episode in our history. And it, it ties into a, a sort of religious revival in the 1980s, you know, this moral majority, you know, rise of Reagan real nastiness in the 80s and uh, it ruined real people's lives but like uh, you know th those those satan cults weren't real you know that was just something no. that people made up and uh i don't know there's something that sort of feels grimy about this Using movie's that. use of it i don't know i understand that they're placing it at a time but i don't know it's just i, I don't feel great about it i kind of want them to be more culty also something about it you know say you want to draw a comparison to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where they seem more like like a weird deviant family that's isolated rather than like something like, again, sorry, uh, Rosemary's Baby, where it's like, oh, wait, no, there's this huge conspiracy, you know, among everyone that this woman knows. And like, that's a really creepy idea, you know, rather than just like, ah, it's a family. They live in a house. Also, I really didn't like the witch makeup. Oh, yeah, God, it looks terrible. Yeah, it was bad. It was terrible. Not the best. Uh... I was so spooked. Maybe that's just because we just watched The Witch, which has really great witch makeup. Oh. But uh, I don't know. The witch in this looked like Voldemort. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but her face spooked me out. Spooked me so much. <laughs> I was so afraid. Oh, I I liked seeing um, the the flashes of her face throughout it as it her face became more and more contorted. I, it was effective to me, at least. Yeah, I mean, there's some good stuff at the end. I just, well, you know my films. Uh, uh, interesting trivia. This film, speaking of mumblecore, features a pre-fame Lena Dunham in a cameo as the 911 oh, operator. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, I freaked out when I saw that in the credits. I was like, what the <laughs> fuck? Also, this is uh, the last film... Uh, as of right now, to be released on VHS, because they actually released it on VHS when they put it out. Yeah, appropriate. Yeah. I did want to talk about, like, I, I alluded to this before, but I think that this is an important film in the context when it was released. Back in 2009, this film came out, I, I, I think it was Ty West's first, at least first major movie, right? Yeah, after uh, Cabin Fever 2. Oh, yeah, oh. okay. <laughs> and it was, it was really critically acclaimed when it came out. And I, I honestly do think that it's, this movie and maybe a handful of others that came out around the same time are responsible for a surge of sort of slow paced, more contemplative horror films. The kind, you know, this wave of horror movies that we're enjoying now. So I do have to like thank it for that because I, I think this movie's success is important in getting those kinds of movies made, you know? I, I think it's mm -hmm. also do, um, did some things uh, to... Uh, solidify the 80s as a um, as a period of time we can now use as a as a set. Yeah. Um, where you know obviously we don't we are the communications a lot more limited, which is prime for horror movie setup, and uh, it's a lot easier in a lot of ways to just mess up everything in someone's life because of how unconnected you can be. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. But I, you know, I think you can look at a movie like It Follows as like a direct descendant of this mm -hmm. you know you it, it has a, a similar pace a similar feeling of mounting dread you know this, uh, this female protagonist it follows is not explicitly set in the 80s but it it has a timeless feeling about it and it uses a lot of 80s-ish music like the music that would appear in an 80s horror movie so you know i think that there's there's a direct line you can draw between those two films and a lot of others that have come out recently mm -hmm. the critically acclaimed kind of horror films 
Uh, I don't know. Anything else we want to say about uh, the House of the Devil? Okay, the thing about the drugged pizza, I'm glad you said you said that because I didn't I didn't like get that. I was like, why did she fall asleep? <laughs> was this magic? Yeah, I thought a witch. I thought the witch did it. I thought yeah, the witch I thought it was like a magic, magic spell or something. It was also. I mean, it was a gross ass looking pizza. I'm surprised she ate any of it. <laughs> Yeah, no, I thought that was just sort of a cute little bit of subtle storytelling. Uh, also, as a final note from me, there's a couch in this movie oh. that my mother owns. <laughs> my mother has that couch. Your mother. It's really? a claw-footed, yellow, upholstered couch. Your mother may need to get that couch exercised. Hey! Oh! Just like our next movie! <laughs> You're, you, guys are, you, guys are, you guys are physically harming me? <laughs> So, Justice, would you like to tell us about The Exorcist 3? I would, but it's, I mean, it's almost sort of pointless because it works much better as, like, a mood piece than it does as a movie with, like, a plot and stuff. <laughs> That's true. But here's the plot. So, it's about uh, George C. Scott plays Lieutenant William Kinderman. He's a, he's a detective who was friends with the, uh, what you call it, with the family from the first Exorcist. And uh, he begins to see... Uh, begins to discover around the city uh, killings, which bear a remarkable resemblance to a to the work of a serial killer who was executed uh, 15 years prior. And uh, it turns out the that Father Karras from the first Exorcist film has been possessed by the spirit of said uh, serial killer, who is uh, starting his work anew to take as part of Satan's revenge. On Father Karras. And, I mean, that's the basic plot of the film, but what's more important is that a lot of this film is cool and creepy and weird as hell, and, yeah. I don't know. I liked it. I liked it. I thought it was really cool up until the last 20 minutes, which are... <laughs> which are bad. bad. I think we all can agree that they're bad. Which, I, I almost feel like more important than the plot summary is sort of the behind-the-scenes yeah, stuff of this movie. So... Uh, the director, William Peter Blatty, who was the writer, but not the director of the first Exorcist movie and the novel on which it is based, uh, wrote a sequel about Lieutenant uh, Kinderman, who is a minor character in the first movie. It was more of a continuation, but not quite a direct sequel to The Exorcist, which he called uh, Legion. And so he turned it into a screenplay and the studio was like, hey, you got this movie that's kind of a sequel to The Exorcist. Why don't we call it Exorcist 3? Because we made Exorcist 2 and it was garbage. And he was like, fine, but there's no exorcism in it. And they were like, that's fine. That's totally fine. We're not going to fuck with the movie. So they shot, by my reckoning, like the whole movie. And then the studio came in and said, hey, we're calling this movie The Exorcist 3, but there's no exorcism in it. Can you add a whole subplot and a totally different ending? to this fucking movie. Uh. And the director was like, sure, I guess. <laughs> so we've got this pretty good movie with a bullshit ending. Also, as another bit of background, as you alluded to uh, what, whatever George Scott's Detective Kinderman? Yes. Lieutenant. Lieutenant Kinderman. Uh, Kinderman, as well as Father Dyer, the priest from the beginning. Oh, yes, yes. And Father Karras, obviously, are all characters from the original Exorcist. In the original conception of the film they were all going to be recast so brad duriff who plays the gemini killer confusingly in this movie was originally just going to play father Karras, possessed but then they were like hey you know um jason miller who played uh father Karras in the original movie he's still a lot he's still around why don't, why don't we put him in but uh unfortunately by this point in his life jason miller was like 
you can see he doesn't look good. He, he, he was not well. And so they were like, well, let's bring back Brad Dourif so he can do all the hard monologues and then just confusingly put Jason Miller in sometimes. <laughs> oh, is that what was going on? That was so weird. Yeah, it's really confusing and it, it, it distracts from the movie. I kind of liked it. I thought it was a cool way to show all the demony goings on. I thought it was cool. Yeah, but like... You recast Kinderman and Dyer. It's just so confusing to me. I don't know. It, it really bugs me. And Brad Dourif is so good. Brad Dourif is America's most underrated actor, like, <laughs> of all time. I love that fucking guy. Yeah, anyhow, that's that's the background I wanted to get out. Oh, yeah, totally. I didn't know that recasting stuff, but... Uh... A fun tidbit, though, about why uh, the Gemini killer is our serial, serial killer. Um, so the Zodiac killer wrote in at some point saying that The Exorcist was his favorite movie. So, uh, really? Yeah. Oh, like what Dirty Harry did. So, um, that's why he is ri- basically written in as our Gemini killer, um, throughout this movie. I don't know. What do we think of, uh, Exorcist 3 besides that the ending sucks? Uh, that whole middle quarter is so good. It's got some fun stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I was talking to Sabrina about this, uh, but you can tell that it was directed by a novelist. Yeah. It's got a, uh, all of the shots are very, like, mood setting and, like, unnecessarily long rather than, like, you know, moving the story forward or expository as they are. Uh, with most filmmakers who know about making movies. <laughs> um, and it was so dialogue heavy. Yeah. Yeah. But I do want to say that I think that the script is really, really good. I think yeah. it's well, I think the, the words are really nice. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's like a play. It's very play, yeah. play-ish. In yeah. And it's got a lot of this really great dialogue. And I, th- I think you're probably right that there are problems with translating that to the language of film. It's a very weirdly edited movie. Like, it feels like the director divided it up into chapters in his head. So there's sometimes there's stuff that'll happen and then we'll get a weird flashback slightly later. Or we'll, we won't see a murder victim until like a weird point in the movie. It feels very strangely cut together, but like it works. Like it works weirdly effectively that it's put together in this slightly, I don't want to say amateurish, but like it's weird, but it, it works. It, it helps that like, there's something seriously fucked up going on here vibe Mm -hmm. that it's working towards. It it sort of reminds me of the early sort of golden age horror movies that we watch where these filmmakers are still figuring out like how to make talkies. And so like there's, there'll be like really weird directorial choices just because like they didn't know how to do stuff yet. They're still figuring it out. And I think that there's an element of that where it's like uh, this guy, he is mostly a writer of novels and screenplays. I believe this is the first film he directed. I think it's the only film he's ever directed. I think he may have made one more. I looked it up. He directed one other movie in uh, 1980, sorry, The Ninth Configuration. Oh, so he'd already made a film. So a decade prior. <laughs> yeah, but it was it was one other movie. This is still his second film. Second and last, I believe. Yeah. Also, speaking of like him sounding like a like an author, like a novelist. So a lot there's a lot of like weird technical medical stuff in this movie, like from characters you wouldn't expect to be talking about the autonomous nervous system. <laughs> and like if it was a novel, just your conception mm. of the character would shift around that. But here, it's, like, so out of sorts with the visuals and, like, what's going on on screen. It just sounds so, like, hackneyed out of their mouth. <laughs> yeah. But, like, when you got George C. Scott saying your stuff, I mean, 
It's going to probably sound good. Being extremely curmudgeonly and irascible. <laughs> exactly. He's yeah. great. It's not so much him. It's like the minor characters, uh, like the cop in the... Um... Uh, the cop in the confessional, the nurse, even though she's a nurse, she doesn't sound like she should be delivering these lines. Yeah. <laughs> oh, um, she's like one of my favorite characters, though. Yeah, <laughs> yeah she, she's a really she's, unique character. I like, liked her. It's like clearly like a, either like purely an acting decision or a directing decision, but like the way she like talks and like acts is fascinating. Oh, man, she was such a pain in the ass, though. <laughs> yeah. I looked into the book, Legion, to prepare for this, and apparently one of the major threads of the book is completely absent from this. He just cut it. He was like, uh, this is not going in the movie. But what's interesting about that is apparently when William Peter Blatty wrote the screenplay adaptation of his book, The Exorcist, William Friedkin said, no, write another draft. This is too much like a movie. <laughs> He's No, he said, like, this is too much like a normal screenplay. William Friedkin was also a documentary filmmaker before he made The Exorcist. That's fair. But, you know, part that's part of what makes The Exorcist really interesting is that it's somewhat unconventional. But just to sort of bring it around, when William Peter Blatty would go on to write this adaptation for the screen of his novel, he did the same thing. He made it more like, you know, he cut out a lot of the weird sprawlingness of the book and made it more like a sort of a typical film narrative, even though a combination of sort of amateurist directorial choices and studio meddling would then return it to being something like fucking weird. <laughs> so I don't know. It's just an interesting lifespan for this movie. <laughs> yeah. Can we talk more about Brad Dorff and him being... I would love to. ...fucking amazing and doing Hannibal Lecter two years before Silence of the Lambs? Yeah. And I think that there's obvious parallels you can draw between... Like, this story reminded me of Silence of the Lambs. Absolutely. Like, it felt like a warm-up for Silence of the Lambs. And probably when he wrote the book, it was at least partially inspired by the popularity of books like Red Dragon and Silence of the Lambs, which were popular at that time. But uh, it, yeah, it's like a warm up for Anthony Hopkins, uh, Brad Dourif's performance. Uh, I love him. I think he's fucking spectacular in this movie. And the, the film just puts a camera on him and just says, go, go for it. You know, you know he just, ah, uh, God. He just like owns the space so effectively, that space of that small cell where all of his scenes are, which is crazy. Yeah. Um, that, like, you forget that George C. Scott, one of cinema's greatest actors, is on the other side of it. It's it's crazy. Yeah, literally, after one of Brad Dourif's monologues, it cut back to George C. Scott for his reaction after just lingering on Brad Dourif for so long. And I was like, oh, fuck. Yeah, <laughs> no, he's he's here as well. Yeah, no, he's, uh, he's so fucking good. <laughs> for folks uh, in podcast land, uh, Brad Dourif is... Uh, Probably now most famous for appearing in The Lord of the Rings. Mm. And also for being the voice of Chucky in the uh, Child's Play series. He's also the doctor in Deadwood. What, who is he in Lord of the Rings? It was a uh, worm tongue. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, this was also the year um, where another film largely salvaged by a Brad Dourif performance came out. Uh, Toby Hooper's Spontaneous Combustion. I am really just ragging on Toby Hooper tonight, <laughs> so my apologies to him. Um, that's okay. But uh, Spontaneous Combustion also came out in 1990, and that is another, that's a movie, I would say unlike this, there's a lot in this movie I like, but uh, Spontaneous Combustion, you're there only for the Brad Dourif performance. <laughs> I will say um, something about this movie is, I think the twist is really cool. What? What's what's the twist? So the Gemini killer who's been inhabiting uh, Father Karras' body for 15 years 
um, never leaves his cell, is just locked in there, and instead his spirit is possessing uh, the old people, like the senile, um, like locked-in people, or like the people with dementia in the in the hospital wards, giving them like supernatural strength, and they're the ones doing all the killing. Okay, I did like that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, I called that. Oh yeah, no, it was obvious. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know if I, it was a, an interesting twist, but it was pretty strongly unfigureoutable, or at least too easily foreshadowed. Yeah, no, I don't think that was a twist. Oh, well, you called it a twist, so that's why I was... <laughs> well, it's not really a twist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I just think it's clever that that's, like, a an interesting scenario for, like, demonic possession. Yeah. And it, it, it works well with that, that scene where the old lady's climbing around on the ceiling, which I think is so good so good and really interesting in context of the the completed film as it is now because that sort of the old lady climbing around on the ceiling is the level it should have escalated to that's like the top level of like oh shit crazy demonic stuff is going on Mm -hmm. and then the ending just pushes it way far yeah and and breaks the movie um my my biggest problem with like the end of this movie is that it has the the same it has the same problem that uh, the most more recent film Ten Cloverfield Lane has, mm. where uh, yeah. it's with it is explicitly within a franchise universe. So when the twist comes, that essentially the twist comes that this is within this franchise universe, and you're like, oh, I know that because literally everything around this film is that. You know, it's sort of like, yeah, I would have liked Exorcist Three a little bit more if it was you know, just called Legion. Yeah. And you're sort of like, oh, like, is this like a weird occult fight thing? Or is this like actually demons? Like what's going on? And instead of the entire time, you're like, oh, this is the exorcist. Like, yep, that's, it's a, de- it, maybe a demon, definitely a demon. Got it. Good. <laughs> yeah. Explicitly just the demon from the exorcist. Yeah. <laughs> uh, his name was Pazuzu and he came out of a statue. Oh, <laughs> Not Pazuzu. And and something looking into the, the novel is that uh, apparently in the book, so Kinderman is one of the main characters who's investigating this and starts to suspect that the Gemini killer is possessing the body of Father Karras. But then like the other main character is like a psychologist who is trying to prove that that isn't the case and that there's like a subplot in the the book that uh, this, this comatose person who may or may not be Father Karras is has only just you know the gemini killer personality is was created by suggestion um so like there's there's a lot more of that complexity where it's like wow is this a demon is this not a demon but in the film they're like no this is a demon (laughs) well exorcist three demon um the other thing i want to talk about with this movie is i don't know why it disappears in the last half of the film the first half of the film has all this really wonderful dream logic like it shows you dreams and like you're within dream worlds and it's really pretty and very interesting, and I could watch it for hours. And then it just, like, stops happening, and it's like, oh, that was... Oh, all right, okay. That guy had yeah, a dream, mm-hmm. and then we talked about it for 15 minutes, and then, then that was just a dream he had, and, like, that's it. Uh, in a dream sequence, uh, Fabio plays yep, an yep. angel. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I was trying to look up if that was actually Fabio, because he's not credited, but it... <laughs> it, it, is, it, is it is definitely, definitely Fabio. Fabio. Yeah, I figured it was... It looked... I mean, it looked exactly like him. Um... And Samuel L. Jackson has an uncredited cameo. Yeah, he's the blind guy in the heaven dream. Oh, weird. Yeah. Very cool. Something interesting that this film does, speaking of that dream sequence in particular, <laughs> is uh, it's the beginning of the movie sets up uh, Kinderman and Father Dyer as the main characters. Mm-hmm. Like, And you get into it, it's like, yeah, 
cop priest like detective movie. Mm. They're gonna be buddies and cantankerous together, <laughs> and that's just like no. Father Dyer just gets gruesomely murdered. Oh, like, but I really loved the character of Father Dyer. Yeah, he's a great character the whole way. He was still influential the whole way through. If you ask yeah. me, <laughs> those those two characters had such a great like grumpy old asshole. Uh, like vibe <laughs> to them. I loved it. I'd watch a television show with the two of them. Oh, absolutely. And, In a heartbeat. And I'd love it. What I think about when I think of this movie is it's three quarters of a great movie. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> and yeah. it just happens to completely fuck up the dismount, which unfortunately has rendered it like this is this is a cult film, you know, and but like I wouldn't show this to somebody who didn't like weird flawed movies like if somebody's like what's a great movie to watch i would never say the exorcist thing. <laughs> um yeah but if somebody was like what's a weird fucking offbeat movie to watch i'd be like uh, exorcist 3 yeah uh because like it's really close to being there but it isn't there um, but for uh listeners to this podcast if you if this sounds interesting to you and didn't you didn't realize there was a second exorcist you do not have to watch the second exorcist <laughs> oh absolutely no don't don't um, watch the second exorcist i might go watch it now but i was very glad to go into the exorcist 3 and realize there was nothing i needed to know about the second one i would also say <laughs> you don't have to know too much about exorcist 1 <laughs> that's true no oh, you don't also that yeah there's some stairs that are important in the <laughs> exorcist 1 that's all you need to know uh, but really only kind of <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, pretty much, yeah. Uh, apparently, uh, one of the reasons William Peter Blatty didn't want to name the movie Exorcist Three is because he didn't want to acknowledge the existence of Exorcist Two. <laughs> <laughs> they could have just called it Exorcist Legion. <laughs> that would have been a better title. But that wouldn't actually. have been popular in 1990. So, um, uh, yeah. I will say there is a there is a great jump scare. I think Justice alluded to it. Oh yeah. That jump scare with the shears, it's fucking good. Can someone reset up that scene for me? Because I forget it. Uh, it's a really, really long shot of a of the nurse walking around and looking in the rooms. Yeah. And she thinks she hears something, and you got the fake-out scare. And then, you know, she goes back to her desk, and she's talking to, like, the cop who's there. And then she goes and checks on another room, and then uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. someone in, like, a white shroud yeah. jumps out with uh, the giant shears. Yeah. And you and it cuts to the headless statue. Yeah, no, there there's so much in the movie that sets up that one scene, and it, it's kind of really impressive. Just like when that nurse first appears in what's in Father Dyer's room, she's like, "Is this four oh nine? No, it's four eleven. And then you see the four eleven in that scene, and the garden shears go missing, and yeah. they're missing for like forty minutes of the movie, and they just let that sit. That's oh, so good. Something I guess. You know, there's really strong, obvious parallels you can draw between this film and Silence of the Lambs, which, as uh, Justice, you mentioned, uh, came out later than this movie. But I, I think that one big difference is that Silence of the Lambs uh, feels a little more grounded. This has more of, like, a big horror premise to it, not only in terms of the possession, but, like, the killer's modus operandi is to decapitate people with giant shears. <laughs> you know, yeah. which is, like, that's, like, a very, like, it's like a slasher movie thing, you know? Um, even though, like, a lot of the rest of the film is this really gritty, hard-boiled, uh, Sons of the Lamb-style, Seven-style kind of, like, serial killer movie. Uh, so it's sort of an interesting relationship. I don't know. Mm. But you know what would have made this movie better? If it were set in Australia. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I watched The Loved Ones. It, it's an indie film from 2000. 
uh, nine uh, in Australia, set in Australia, um, also just made in Australia. Um, and it's about a handful of high school age students who, one of which is our main character, his name's Brent. Um, God, I really wish I had written a, written a summary. <laughs> Basically, kid in a car crash, which kills his father. Um, he goes to prom with his uh, girlfriend after shutting down politely a another girl who ends up uh, whose father ends up kidnapping our our main male protagonist, and they do some fucked up shit. <laughs> and instead of him going to going to going to prom, <laughs> um, it was also a lot of fun. So I recommend it to all y'all. Yeah, this movie's fun as hell. I like it a lot. Yeah, it, it's fun with um it's fun. It there is um a fair amount of like relatable gore. That's not how I want. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag relatable. No. I I, t- I mean, who hasn't tried to lobotomize someone with a boiling water and a fucking power drill? I mean, it's basically all of my intrusive thoughts made into a fun movie, so that's pretty cool. <laughs> but yeah, one of the cool things about this movie is, um, or uh, is the is this family, which is um, Lola and her father, are their character are their character names, as far as I'm concerned. Um, <laughs> and it appears that uh, they have been doing this for a while, um, <laughs> taking their taking varying people and um, for Lola trying to create her her prince. Um, as she refers to him, and then who knows for this father figure. And, you know, they open up the ground of their house and turns out there's like 10 of them in a pile of bones down there. (laughs) Of these like (laughs) lobotomized characters. Of course, you cannot recognize them anymore, but I believe there was a a mixture of genders implying that like, "Hmm, there's... It's happened for uh, some time, and these are the the fittest. <laughs> uh, I I don't know what it is about Australia, but um, they seem to make films that are universally really fucking depraved. <laughs> yeah. I don't watch any Australian movie; it's always some depravity going because, on. Wolf I mean, Creek? it helps that oh, okay. they they come from the land where there's literally where literally everything is trying to kill them. Also, it literally became a state when they were like, "Hey, let's put a bunch of criminals out here." You know, uh, Australia is proof that under laboratory conditions, it only takes a very small number of English people to ruin an entire continent. <laughs> mm. uh, or world. Um, but that being said, this movie has some really great, uh, really great atmosphere. It's horribly uncomfortable, but it's really well done. Because um, between Lola and her father, you have this weird sexual tension that is stated more and more outright the further in the movie you get. You... Um, get this weird one-way tension between Lola and and Brent uh, where Lola just is looking for someone to (laughs) I don't really know what she's trying for but um and but it's and then it's all set against this small-ish town setting where you know the everyone or all of our characters know the cop of the town and um, it, it's just an interesting 
an in really interesting pairing of um of events. That's the movie, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, did all of you guys watch it? I did not get to see it. No, I'm sorry. Aww. I only saw a small bit of it. I I watched it. Yeah, you did. <laughs> um, and Justice watched it once in his life. I too watched it. Yeah, I've seen it a couple times now. Uh, I, I first heard about this film when McCoy recommended it to me. I think after you made him watch it. I probably, yeah. Uh, shout out to McCoy again. <laughs> shout out to McCoy again. Take a drink. We shouted out to McCoy. <laughs> yes. Uh, I'm sort of curious for, for Alex and Sabrina, you guys who just watched it. Uh, what did y'all think of the stoner friend and his goth date subplot? Because I have mixed feelings about yeah, that subplot. Was... <laughs> um... Go for it, Alex. I'll just laugh over here for a sec. It was silly. Um, I think it brought uh, some levity to the film, which was super necessary. Mm. The weird connection between them and what was going on, tenuous at best. <laughs> Please explain the connection. Uh, so you find out uh, either if you're super fucking observant like Sabrina is, or later on, like uh, if you're dull like I am, um, <laughs> that uh, there's a, a subplot that goes throughout the film that has uh, the best friend of uh, the main dude who gets tortured going to the end of year dance with this like hot goth, goth girl he really likes, and she's like all fucked up, and he doesn't really know why. Uh, and then you find out that uh, the her brother was uh, kidnapped by these people who are Lola, Lola. and her father who uh, tortured him and he escaped, but then also died or something. Yeah, um, very, very cool. He's actually in the first scene of the movie with the first um, portion of the movie where the where Brent um, uh, is, is in a car accident. He swerves to miss this kid who is the son of the cop and the uh, brother of the stoner's girlfriend. And so they're all related in this really bizarrely close way that is revealed slowly. It was a little weird, a little uh, unnecessary in terms of, you know, having a conservative narrative. Uh, but I think it uh, totally helped the film out because I think if it was just 60 minutes of this dude being tortured, it would have been like, all right, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, take it down a step. Um, yeah. I think what I liked about it was that it, it kept it, it kept it, gave it a timeline that was a little more concise. Otherwise I would have had no idea how long that was taking place over. Um, and you get this amusing idea of what this kid would have been doing had he not been taken. Um, so what these, what this pair does is they, kind of go to the end of the year dance uh, but they they smoke and drink in the car and then by the time they um, make their way to the dance they are sloppy um, and very into each other uh, <laughs> and are kicked out of the dance to uh, start having sex in their car and they get kicked out of the, the school parking lot. Let's just, okay, I want to have a conversation about that scene. So, it's, it's, so that scene uh, starts with uh, the two of them on the dance floor. There's a slow dance going on. And this girl starts, like, grabbing this dude's junk. And he is like, holy shit. He's never had this happen. Like, and people are like, looking at them. And she's, like, kind of, like, being crazy about it. But then uh, the teacher comes up and, to them and is like, hey, if you want to do something like this, you have to go somewhere else. 
and they do, and they leave, and they go fuck in the car, and then he, like, comes and, like, knocks on the window of these, like, teenagers fucking, and is like, <laughs> when I said that, I meant you have to be off the property. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, this is a really bizarre. <laughs> and like, fuck that guy. <laughs> he did. They did exactly what you told them to do. <laughs> uh, Alex, I think it's funny uh, that you mentioned the Texas Chainsaw Massacre because uh, I have to say that um, that you hate Toby Hooper. We get it. Uh, no, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is one of the greatest horror films of all time. Mm. Um, I haven't seen it. I'm excited uh, to but, get there. But uh, in terms of Movies about people being gruesomely tortured after leaving prom uh, or in prom-related scenarios. Uh, it can't – this has got to be better than Texas Chainsaw Massacre 4, uh, which stars Renee Zellweger. All right. Jesus. Uh, and also involves teenagers leaving prom. Yeah. So anyhow. Um, no, I, I was reading up some um, interviews with the director, and that was definitely one of his um, points of interest when writing the movie. The, the franchise, not specifically the fourth Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, between that and the serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer, you were, you know, we're pretty set as far as like references go. Apparently, the um, the uh, lobotomy is something Dahmer tried to do unsuccessfully. What? Holy shit! Oh yeah, yeah. yeah frequently that was. <laughs> oh yeah, no, that was his uh, modus operandi. He wanted to make sex yeah. zombies. Yeah, never succeeded. Thank God, Jesus. <laughs> okay, what the fuck? Yeah, he would. Um, he uh, you know drilled holes in heads and then poured acid in there. Mm-hmm. Um, no, but that was really the. O- that was one of the. Uh, I looked into lobotomies because I was pretty sure that was that was never how anyone has ever done a lobotomy before, <laughs> <laughs> and. I was right. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. I mean, yes, there were there were lobotomies where you started with the, the the skull drilling, but you ended up with like, for lack of a better word, digging around for a hot sec. Mm, yeah. And, mm. and that was about it. The, the classic one was an ice pick inserted above the eye. That was mm-hmm. later. That was later. Your original yeah. lobotomy had the had your brain inc- incisions first, and then you'd. Scratch around in there, cut, uh, trying to sever the parts you need to sever. Um, uh, fun story. <laughs> I had a relative. Uh, uh, this was before, way, way, way before I was born. But uh, I believe maybe a great aunt, or perhaps uh, some other, some cousin of you know, uh, I don't know what, but um, who was uh, lobotomized huh. uh, for being sad. <laughs> That's a thing I can uh, get. This is true. Uh, yeah, yeah uh, <laughs> she was uh, abandoned by her fiance at the altar. Oh no! And her family decided that uh, she could not deal with the grief, and so uh, she was lobotomized. That's true. That uh, that really happened. Jesus. Uh, I mean, that was like fifty years ago. But um, so anyhow. So to talk about this actual movie. <laughs> one thing I think this movie does really well is balance. Uh, this like really really dark humor with the fucked up uh, mm-hmm. you know subject matter there are a lot of uh, things that are happening that like you find yourself laughing in spite of yourself I think in particular the the sound design is amazing oh, yeah, it's fantastic oh Jesus God yeah um, the from the, the the recurring motif of the Casey Chambers song uh, Pretty Enough uh, which is demented in its own way which is great um <laughs> to just the sounds that are created when they're like drilling into this kid's forehead. Yeah. 
is like possibly the single best sound effect I think I've ever heard in my life. Oh yeah. And then the visual <laughs> effects are really really interesting too to go along with that you get a, like little spurts of brain dust or uh, of bone dust yeah. coming out. Oh yeah. And <laughs> uh, and then you, you you know you get knives through people's feet. That's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. I I'm a big fan of the um ironic use of a cheerful song. <laughs> uh, I think when done well that's a uh, a, a great a great uh, filmmaking cliche. Then I think you'll like this movie cuz yeah. it's got yeah. It's got a good motif there. Uh, yeah, no, this movie does a lot with, uh, without m- visually showing much, because like most of the gore, it it sort of, it sort of goes sound effects. You see the aftermath. Yeah, you always see the aftermath, which I think is really you always see the aftermath in kind of like a long shot before it get becomes just like before it moves on to the next thing and it just sort of becomes a part of the set dressing. You sort of mm-hmm. get. These sound effects and actors' reactions, and then a long shot of whatever the horrifying thing is. Yeah. And then it sort of transitions into it being normal. Well, not normal, but like just part of the film, which I, I think is very effective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a good It's a good formula. Not, not to deviate too much from the subject matter, but uh, has anyone here seen the New Zealand film Housebound? That sounds really familiar. No, I've heard it's good though. Uh, it is pretty good. I have problems with it, but um, well, I don't want to talk about it too much. But it, uh, there's an element in that film while we're talking about um, antipodes, uh, Ooh, sort of black comedy horror films. Uh, uh, there's elements of that film that sit uneasily with each other. But if no one's seen it, then there's no point in me talking about. It. But it's worth it's worth checking out. It's. I'll have to do that. Cool. Yeah, likewise. Um, I think the other the other big thing we should talk about with this movie is the. Uh, main trio of actors, uh, Xavier Samuel as Brent, Robin McLeavy as Lola, and John Brumpton as Lola's dad, because I think they're all fucking phenomenal Absolutely. in their roles. Um, this mm-hmm. this was one of those movies where I watched it, and I forget her name, even though you said 10 seconds ago, but uh, the actress who plays uh, uh, Lola, I, I like was watching the film, and I'm like, I'm worried about like your future in film, not because you did a bad job, but because you did so good. I can't see you possibly not being typecast for the rest of your life. Oh, absolutely. She's so terrifying, but so recognizable in that like teenage girl mode. Yeah. It's it's a amazing yeah. performance. Alex, while we were watching this, you commented um, on her character decline, or really, um, like uh, less, uh, or even um, your realization that she is not a character who can do things. Yeah, yeah. There's a specific moment so when she gets, you know, she's been doing this whole this whole movie and like people being tortured, but like you don't really think about the fact that she hasn't actually done very much. You don't really think about that. Until uh, she tries to kill uh, Brent's girlfriend in a car, and she's just completely ineffective. And there's this <laughs> like no, but like it's it's comical, but it's also like I was watching it and I'm like, oh, like this is a like a girl who's like never had to do anything for herself really. I mean, she says it when mm-hmm. the lobotomy happens. She's like, this is my first time doing this. Like, Daddy, can you make can you make this hole easier for me to pour boiling water down? Yeah, <laughs> and like that's like the whole the whole film, I think, is enlightened by those little hints of understanding these characters, and I like that. Yeah, and it, I mean it's also performed so well because she's impotent evil who's a spoiled child who thinks she's the big evil. 
yeah. whose father has led her to believe that she's not the big evil, but like the star of the show, essentially. And that's also what's so good about the dad's performance, because he he fades into the background, even though he's doing everything. Yeah. He sort of, he lets Lola take the spotlight as a serial killer in the movie and also as a horror villain, which is just so good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The one thing I will give her, though, she has a lot of drive. <laughs> That's uh, true. <laughs> she gets hit by a car going 140 kilometers per hour <laughs> and uh, then just c- literally claws her way forward for a good you know, a couple hundred feet. That's a can-do attitude. Yeah, right? Absolutely. <laughs> Definitely recommend this movie, guys. Yeah. Go watch it tonight. Absolutely. <laughs> I, uh, I, I also, I, I just want, just briefly wanted to talk about Xavier Samuel as Brent, the main character. When he cuts his hair, he's super hot. I believe it. <laughs> as believe as it. a person with long hair, he looks <laughs> like fucking uh, Tim Riggins from Saturday Night Lights. <laughs> Friday Night Lights. Sports are weird. Okay, totally. But yeah, guys, uh, thanks for doing some Secret Santa with us. That was pretty cool. Yeah, this was actually, this was a really, really fun concept. Uh, I had a lot of fun doing this. That's right. This is the best holiday concept in horror podcasting. (laughs) (laughs) Uh. Yeah, and if if you listeners at home uh, watch these movies with us, you should uh, let us know on Twitter at uh, twitter.com slash spookorama. You can also uh, email us, uh, comments, fan mail, hate mail, any of that good stuff. at uh, Oh, please. Uh, podcast uh, at gmail.com. <laughs> uh, also, if you like hearing about all things spooky, you should donate money to our Patreon. Doing that gets you even more spooky stuff every month, helps us create all this cool stuff that you like. Lots of stuff, lots of spookarama, lots of giving us money. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, we've got some. Uh, we've got an upcoming special episode. That's true. Yeah. After this, our wonderful Christmas episode, we're going to be releasing a Patreon-only episode for New Year's, where we talk about reboots. If you want to hear me talk more about uh, what I think distinguishes the '80s Invaders from Mars from the '80s Fly. Uh, you can tune on in because that's something I'm going to be talking about. Or if you just want to listen to Thad talk about literally anything, (laughs) please let us know on iTunes or SoundCloud or I don't think we have anything else out there uh, that hasn't been mentioned. (laughs) Our Twitter. I I mentioned the Twitter earlier. Follow our Twitter. Follow us on Twitter at Spookarama. Thank you. If you subscribe, I uh, can uh, leave you a voicemail like the guy from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. <laughs> yeah, all, got, all you all out there in podcast land, please talk to us. We're excited to talk to you all, or at least I am. Yeah, I'm on Twitter like all the time. <laughs> please. <laughs> this is all, the wheels are fucking coming off. Guys, Merry Christmas. Uh, happy holidays uh, to anyone who doesn't celebrate Christmas. Uh, also, I believe Hanukkah starts uh, on Christmas Eve this year, so... That's pretty cool. Oh, nice. uh, yeah. Uh, uh, the, a confluence of, uh, a of that. Yes. Uh, and, uh, yeah, have, uh, thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed it. I had fun. I know, you know, I always do, so I, I hope you all did, too. And uh, I think we'll see you next time. Sound good, guys? Sounds good to me. Yeah, see you around, guys. Sounds so good. Sounds so good. Happy holidays, everybody. Well, uh, say goodbye, folks. Goodbye, folks. Bye. Bye. Bye, con Dios.